beloved, we are in um, Hebrew. No, we're not in Hebrews. That's a that is one that I'm going to read though. We're in Luke chapter 14 this week. Um, but I want to note something that we read in Hebrews a couple weeks ago. So Hebrews 14, we'll read verses 12 through 24 as our text this morning. Um, let me invite you to stand if you would. Uh, before we go to Luke, hear these words from Hebrews. I said I was going to come back to it, and I try to remember the things that I said. The author to the Hebrews says, For here we have no lasting city, but we, are, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now over to, uh, now over to Luke 14, beginning in verse 12. Jesus said, um, he said, he also said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner... Or a banquet. Don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come. For everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges. And compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Beloved, this is God's word, and it is absolutely true. Let's pray. Father, as we sung in prayer earlier this day in worship, we uh, join together in fervent prayer even now. Speak, O Lord. We don't need the wisdom that we bring. We don't need the insights that we have. And we don't need to continue to operate as the ones who have it all together. 
You, O Lord, must speak. We need the wisdom that is from on high. You can and will do this through the spirit you have given from the son who has been raised. Help us, we pray. Amen. Be seated. It is kind of fun that this Pentecost Sunday, this day where we remember uh, the gift and the, uh, the giving of the Holy Spirit as Luke records for us in Acts chapter 2, this day that changed everything when the disorder and chaos of the Tower of Babel was undone. And all of a sudden now, the nations that were once scattered are now gathered once more um, under the power of the Spirit promised by and given through the resurrected Jesus. It is with that hope, this hope of living as a church in the season of Pentecost, that we launch in to this summertime, this time when school is out, Schedules change, um, a bit more leisure is enjoyed by some of our families as we find time to gather around grills or pools and backyards as we go and travel and see places we haven't seen and connect with people that we haven't seen in a long time. It is this, it is this power that comes through the spirit that was given at Pentecost That is what enables us to do all the things that we've been talking about over the last several weeks together. We've been considering what it is to recover biblical hospitality. And so this week, as we kind of conclude this little uh, series on this, I want to read for you a quote by Christine Pohl. Now, Christine Pohl is a PhD that we've been using some of her research in this field. Um, I want to read for you a quote that she had in her book, Making Room, Recovering Hospitality as a Christian Tradition. Here's what she writes. She says, we become proficient in a skill by performing it regularly and by learning from persons who are masters of it. Hospitality is a skill and a gift, but it is also a practice which flourishes as multiple skills are developed, as particular commitments and values are nurtured, and as certain settings are cultivated. Now, I want to draw out some of the words that were present in that quote. She said, become regularly learning, practice, developed, nurtured, cultivated. Now, all of those words, as you are well aware, are not words of instantaneousness or finality. All of those words are progress or process words. All of those words indicate that something is happening. And that something is happening probably over a long period of time. What's dangerous for us is to fall into one of two ditches, which both end up funneling down to the same conclusion. On the one hand, there's the ditch of 
I can't do it. I'm overwhelmed. I don't know where to begin. I don't know where to start. It seems like too much. My life is too busy. My life is too chaotic. I give up. That's not, um, that's not what we want to see happen. And then the second ditch to fall into is, I'm good. It's a shortcut to the first ditch. It's to say, I'm good, is to say, I've arrived, I've got it, I'm practicing it as good as it will ever be practiced. What it lays out for us instead is that um, as a community, I would argue that for us, this is one of the most important things that we as a body need to cultivate. Um, Because again, it's not an end, it's not a checkpoint, it's not a um, it's not a task to be accomplished. It's a trait of the church. It's a means to an end. And we're going to talk about what that end is today. Okay, so that's kind of where we're heading today. We're gonna, we've said, okay, it's a means to an end. That's great. What's the end? Let's talk about that today. Um, it all comes under the context of what Jesus gave here in Luke 14. Now, Luke 14 is an interesting chapter in the Gospel of Luke because here, for the first 24 verses, it all is happening under the auspices of a feast, under uh, a, a banquet that's being thrown, for uh, presumably for Jesus. But it's not so much friendly company going on here. Um, There's three sections of teaching that happen in the first 24 verses of this chapter. And the first one is is a section where uh, Jesus heals a man with a physical ailment. And he looks at the Pharisees and says, if your ox was in a ditch or a well, would you not get it out of the well? And, And Luke says they couldn't answer him. But Jesus nonetheless healed him. It turns around, and then we go to this kind of next section where in the midst of the feast, it, it appears that people were clamoring for the, for the right place to sit. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, but Jesus teaches them and, and talks a little bit in verses 7 through 11 about what it looks like for, for people to, to not clamor for position or power. And then, beginning in verse 12, he addressed the host of the banquet. And this is where we're going to focus our time here in what Jesus says to the host and what Jesus says to, to everyone in the parable. And what I'm calling this here is I'm, when he's speaking to the host, uh, this is what I'm calling kind of the heart of hospitality because he's really going and addressing the thing that makes hospitality different than entertaining. You've heard me say that before, but, but we'll say it again. Hospitality is not uh, what you see uh, Martha Stewart or um, uh, Ina Gartner or any of the other Food Network personalities. Like, this is not hospitality. This is enterta- that's entertainment. Um, hospitality has very different aims in mind. So we're going to call this first section the heart of hospitality. And then as we look at the parable, we're going to look at a little bit about what it means to see the hope 
the hope of hospitality. In the heart of hospitality, we begin right here in verse 12, where Jesus says, he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Now, to be clear, one of the things this is not saying This is not saying that you now have a biblical warrant to tell anyone that you don't want to come into your house, I'm a Christian, and the Bible tells me you can't come over anymore. Gents, you can't say that to your mother-in-law. You can't. That's not appropriate or biblical or healthy for anyone. Um, What Jesus is addressing here is a system of of reciprocity that was in place and very common in the ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, in the day in which Jesus is alive and teaching, it it is not a democracy. It is not a meritocracy. It is a hierarchy. And in a hierarchy, here's the deal. If you don't have a certain social status, you don't have access to things, period. You can't work harder. You can't vote for the right person. You can't get a better job. If you're not part of the right social class, you don't get the things that they get. And so it was all about not what you know, but who you know. So here's how hospitality was generally used. We talked a couple weeks ago about about hospitality facilitating the economics of the day. It was all about reciprocity. You bring someone over to your house, you show them a lavish meal, and you hope that they'll do the same for you. And maybe they'll invite some of the really important people that might have the stuff that you need to get, and maybe you'll get a chance to sit near the really important people. And talk about your really important problem. And maybe those really important people can help you get what you really want. See, it was all about using people for ends. And again, this wasn't necessarily malicious. It simply was the way the world worked. It's the way the society was set up. And Jesus wasn't coming in just to kind of be a a helpful spiritual add-on to society. No, Jesus was turning society upside down. Jesus was bringing the wisdom from heaven and saying the wisdom from heaven is going to undo all the unwise things of the world. And so he looks to the one who invited him to the feast and he says, when you throw a banquet, when you throw a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and be repaid. Now, also, Jesus is not saying here that you should never get together with friends or family. In fact, just previously in Luke chapter 10, he did that. He got together with Lazarus and his two sisters. He had a delightful time. So he's not saying that you should never be social. No, Jesus is always concerned about the heart. He's always concerned about the heart. That's been the big problem all along, hasn't it? It wasn't that the Pharisees didn't know or understand or comprehend the law. It's that they didn't believe the law. They didn't believe the heart of God. They didn't have the heart of God. 
Here Jesus is confronting the whole system, the in crowd, working the system. He says, you don't invite those who can repay you, who can get things done for you or advance your status or standing. Now, who does he say we should invite? Well, look here in verse 13. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So, just, it's going to be tempting for all of us to try and spiritualize what Jesus said. And, and we can, right? We can do that. We, we know how to make all these categories work. It's tempting to, to say that um, the, the poor, the crippled, the lame, and, and the blind are spiritual categories. And, 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 that, and that's fine because we are all poor in spirit. We've been crippled by sin and made powerless by it. We're spiritually blind, unable to see the truth about Jesus, and spiritually lame, unable to come to Jesus on our own. All of that is true. I'm not about to say that that's not true. But here's the thing. Why do you think Jesus would have mentioned those four categories of people? Was he simply going to point at people that had physical ailments and say, do you see these people with physical ailments? I've brought them here today to make a spiritual point because that's really what I'm talking about is the spirit. Here's the thing. <clears throat> we say we are a reformed people, right? Um, Semper Reformanda is reformed and always reforming. <clears throat> so here is one place where the evangelical church, that would be kind of the reformed, uh, the conservative, the uh, Bible-believing, the, the evangelical church has a blind spot. Everything is vertical, it's all about us and our relationship with God, everything. Um, there's, there's virtually no room for horizontal at all. There's no room for um, how the world is, how the world operates, um, justice or anything else in the world, okay? So we look at a text like this and we say, well, obviously the poor in spirit, bring the poor in spirit and, and bring the lame and the crippled and the blind and, and all that. That's who Jesus is talking about. The, the problem is though, uh, not just for us because we have, we have blind spots. The, the other problem is for... Um, kind of the, the, more, the more liberal, the more, the more mainline uh, denominations, um, their problem is everything's horizontal, right? Everything's horizontal. It's missing the vertical. It's not so much about our relationship with God. It's about our relationship with, with nature and with climate and with the world and everything else. And that's true, but it's missing something, isn't it? And here's the picture that the Bible gives us. It is both <laughs> about the horizontal, and about the vertical. You don't have one without the other. It is both. And so when Jesus is talking about inviting these people, it's not just those of a spiritual type, it's those of a physical type. It's not just people that, uh, because we can spiritualize everything and never change, is really kind of our problem that we have. We can make everything spiritual and be like, well, okay, I've dealt with it, but it actually doesn't have any impact with us in the world because we've made everything just about us and God and, and, and nothing 
that branches out into the horizontal. But, but what Jesus is saying here is that, no, you should actually invite the people that are what? They're on the fringes of society. They are on the margins of society. They cannot change who they are. They have physical ailments. They have economic disparity. They are not, they can't repay you. They can't do anything for you. They can't advance your social status. They can't get you what you always wanted. They're just there. And Jesus said, those are the people that you should be inviting. Those are the people that you should be bringing in. Those are the people you should be drawing near. By inviting the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, Jesus is trashing the patronage system. He's saying the kingdom of God is not built on the backs of using people. The reason that we have people in our homes isn't to use them or to get something done through them, but simply because we love them. Now, do you know why? A lot of times I like hanging out with friends besides the fact that they're my friends. I like to feel liked. I do. I like to feel liked. It's kind of encouraging. And while my friends do like me, if I don't check that desire or that like to be liked, I'm not loving my friends. I'm using my friends. I'm not actually loving them at all. They have simply become instruments for my happiness rather than me being an instrument for their joy. See, that's that's the problem is we have we perpetually lose sight of the delight that we have because we are sons and daughters of Jesus. We lose sight of the fact that there are there is fullness of life at Jesus' feet. There is there's there's fountains of living water. It is from him that when we drink, we never thirst again. It is it is through him that when we are loved by him that we can love and serve others and not use others because we have been satisfied in him. That's where the heart of hospitality comes in. That's what this whole enterprise is all about. We're not using people for our own gain or satisfaction or happiness. We are serving people. Now, that doesn't mean that friendship isn't a gift. And that doesn't mean that God can't use friends and family and loved ones and strangers to encourage us. But beloved, here's the thing. It's a slippery slope. If we're not careful, we will fall into the trap of using people rather than serving people, about having people like us rather than us loving them. And that's a problem because it's a, it's a sneaky trap the enemy sets for us. And if we're not careful, we'll fall headlong into it. It was around this time, I think, around that table, that one of those reclining felt the awkward moment. You know the one. He just said some really hard stuff. Quick, 
someone say amen so that we can go ahead and get on with the second course. So he reclines back. And what does he say? One of those who reclined at table with him heard these things and said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Can he please pass the croutons? See, if the heart of the gospel is that those who could not and should not have any part of the feast are invited in and given priority seating by the king, then we have to address the hope of the feast, the hope of hospitality, that at the end of the day, I bet all of us have a guest list that's too small. That's what Jesus was addressing here. Notice Jesus Jesus doesn't look at him and say, you're right. He is right, but it's only kind of on the surface right. It is going to be a blessing to gather together and eat together at the feast of the kingdom, at the feast of God. But as I mentioned, this, um, this whole meal is probably a trap for Jesus. Back in verse 1 of chapter 14, um, it says this. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. This wasn't a friendly meal. This wasn't a meal where it was all things were going just super great. So let me kind of give you a rough paraphrase of what the guy reclining at the table actually said to Jesus. Um, if I could give you a rough paraphrase, it's something like this. Uh, blessed are the likes of us the informed, the in, the included, who will eat at the feast of God. Does that sound closer to what he said? It sounds closer to me as to what he said. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I feel like that was in the, under, in, in the under, underpinnings there. He had the wrong scope and the wrong size of the meal because he was still in the mindset of it's going to be us versus them. So Jesus tells a parable, and as often Jesus does, his parables are loaded with meaning. This one, however, um, has some particular characteristics that are interesting in that he actually incorporated one of the things that had just happened in the conversation into the story. It wasn't like he was veiling it. So here's what happens. He tells a parable about a man who... Uh, um, gave a great banquet and invited many. So here's the way this system worked. They, um, they, they didn't have um, whatever electronic invite system. You didn't get some sort of email that said, hey, there's a party coming up. There would have been two invitations that would have been given, right? So the, the first invitation would have gone out. He would have canvassed the crowd of all those that he intended to invite. And then once he figured out who was in, who was coming, he would have selected the appropriate sized animal to be slaughtered. Once the slaughter had happened and, the, and the, all the provisions were available, he would have sent a servant out again in order to collect kind of the final, okay, everything's ready, let's go eat now. So to say yes to the first invite, but no to the second invite would have been an incredible insult. 
Like this would have been incredibly insulting. It would have been incredibly uh, demeaning. You would have taken great damage from your social status. And so it would have had to have been an amazing, like something seriously wrong just happened and, and I could not foresee it or expect it and I can't go. I'm so sorry. So let's look at the reasons that were given to the man who was throwing the party. Reason number one. The first one said to him, verse 18, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. They didn't have Google Earth. He wasn't viewing the field from satellite imagery. No one buys a field without looking at it first. No one does this. Second excuse, verse 19, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I have to go examine them. Please have me excused. This is also problematic. You don't buy the oxen first and then go and see, I wonder if, you know, if they have, you know, both eyes. Whatever is important for oxen to have. It's probably meat. That's probably the important thing. Maybe eyes. I don't know. Third thing. I've married a wife. And therefore, I can't come. Okay. Now, this one actually does have some cultural analog here. <laughs> They're not dropping everything and going to Vegas. So... Weddings would have been planned far in advance, well enough in advance that he would have known, I'm getting married, and I shouldn't be saying yes. And this is where Jesus starts messing with the expectations of the Pharisees. Verse 21, so the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city. And who should he bring in exactly? The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Where would they be sitting exactly? They'd be sitting at all the places that had all the place cards of all the original invited guests who should have been there but said no. Now just remember, the Messiah, the promised one of Israel, foretold in the law and the prophets. In Luke 24, we see that Jesus takes all the law and the prophets and shows everybody how it all points back and relates to him. The Jews, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they were the ones that had the oracles of God. They were the ones that had access to the temple. They were the ones that had access to make sacrifices. They were the ones to know, to look for the promised Messiah. And now the promised Messiah is here, and what are they saying? Uh, I'm busy. You see, it's no accident that Jesus is saying what he's saying here. But he's saying, your, your vision is too small. Not only is it the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame Jews of the city, but then in the parable, it goes on in verses 22 and 23. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done. And still there is room. 
And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Now, there are other places in the scriptures that we don't have time to look at right now that give us a pretty clear picture that what Jesus is talking about here is that now, not only is it the the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind Jews that are coming in, but now the banquet, the feast is being opened up so that the Gentiles can come in as well. Not the problem of uh, the Pharisees saying, blessed are those who are going to eat break bread together in the kingdom of God. Remember I said, I've said several weeks now that the problem was not the idea that there's going to be a feast of the kingdom of God. The problem has always been who's on the guest list. And the people that have been religiously keeping the law and slavishly working for a God they don't believe in, those people are getting mad that the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners and the, and, and the dregs of society are being brought in and given first choice at where they seat. Bring the Gentiles in. How does this confront us? Well, the question that we would have to ask is what does the kingdom look like that we are hoping for? Um, Everybody in the world, for good or for ill, is living out of the picture of what they want the world to look like, okay? People that are are, um, doing heinous and awful things in the world are, are enacting a certain picture of what they think the world ought to look like. So then by comparison, what is the world, beloved, that you and I are enacting? What is the thing that we are doing? What is the thing wherein this is what we, this is what we do, therefore it is a reflection of what we believe? What does the world look like that we are trying to enact? It is, a, is it a pan-national gospel, a pan-national kingdom, with a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation gathered together? Or is it just the people that look and talk and sound like us? Is is Metrocrest at least a a small picture of of the makeup of Carrollton? Ethnically? Educationally, economically, do we see gathered in here at least a a, a small picture of what our area looks like? Or is it people who are just like us? You see, that's not very hopeful. That kind of hurts. Okay, maybe. But only if we believe that it's up to us to actually like pull it up by the bootstraps and get it together. Um, what I would hope is that these things and others would begin to animate our hearts towards a different type of prayer. 
towards a different type of expectancy, that we would begin to go before the Lord and labor before him, that he would not only change our hearts, but he would change our community. And not only that he would change our community, but that the, the spirit that was poured out there at Acts would yet be poured out again. And in power, God's people would find, though they did not have the training or the skill or the words or the, or the, or the competencies necessary to be ambassadors for Jesus, yet nevertheless, they were filled with the Spirit and sent out in God's grace and power to love people, call to people, lay down their lives for people, and see people brought near to the one whom we preach, Jesus Christ. That's what we want to see happening. And the only way that happens is by a movement of God as God's people get on their knees and pray and say, I don't want my life to continue on the track that it's on. I don't want it to keep going in the direction that it's in. I realize that I've drifted. God, would you take my life and would you orient it back to you because of your love for me? As one scholar put it, the metaphor of feasting as distinct from merely eating a meal assures us that no true potential appetite, desire, or longing given us by God will prove to have been a deception, but all will be granted their richest and most sublime fulfillment. The great banquet is a lavish, sumptuous image of the kingdom of heaven that will be exceeded by its reality, joyous satisfaction, and the ultimate convener and host will be Christ himself. So what are questions that we should be asking as we conclude about our heart? Beloved, in light of God's word and in light of God's um, grace, in light of what Jesus has commanded us and said his kingdom looks like, how must our hearts change? How must our prayers, priorities, and plans change? Change in order to more fully reflect the heart of Jesus' mission, tangibly expressed by who we associate with and welcome into our homes. How must we change? Secondly, for that which we are hoping, what is our hope for the kingdom that is to come? As Paul admonished a few weeks ago in Romans 12, don't be slothful in zeal. What are we zealous for? Are we zealous for the comfort of right teaching and doctrine alone or right teaching and doctrine that fuels a heart for people and a hope that this church will begin to look, at least in some small part, like the kingdom that Jesus gave us here in the parable. I'll read for you this quote that's in your program. Uh, it's from Tim Chester's book, A Meal of Jesus. He said, everything else, creation, redemption, mission, is for this, that we might eat together in the presence of God. God created the world so that we might eat with him. The food we consume, the table around which we sit, and the companions gathered with us have as their end our communion with one another and with God. The Israelites were redeemed to eat with uh, the Israelites were redeemed to eat with God on the mountain and we are redeemed for the great messianic banquet that we anticipate when we eat together as a Christian community. 
We proclaim Christ in mission so that others might hear the invitation to join the feast. Creation, redemption, and mission all exist so that this meal can take place. Friends, the the little meals of this earth and the homes that they take place in are avenues and on-ramps to experience the meal that is to come. It is the way that we enact our mission. It is not the mission in and of itself. The mission is not to be more hospitable. The mission is for people to see Jesus. Hospitality is just the on-ramp to that. We rehearse our future into our present and offer our homes, tables, food, and lives to our neighbors, the nations, and the next generation in the hope that they too might hear the invitation to the great feast and take their seat at the table with us. Even so, Lord Jesus, make it so and make it glorious.